Well, good morning, church. That settled down awfully quickly. Uh, good to see everybody. Um, really, really great to worship alongside of you, to sing the praises uh, of Jesus. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I get to be the teaching pastor here, uh, which is just a, a blessing. Very thankful for that. Um, this morning, if you're a guest, maybe it's the first time you're with us, I do want to just say a very special welcome to you. We're super thankful that you're here. Uh, one thing that we would ask of you guests in front of you on the back of the chair should be a QR code. If you pull out your phone and uh, open up your camera app, scan that QR code, it will direct you to lpguest.com. We have a digital guest information card. We'd love for you to fill that out. We'll also donate $5 uh, to one of our partner ministries in your honor if you do that. Right? So we'd love to give to one of our partner ministries. We just need you to fill that out if you would be uh, so kind uh, to do that. Uh, you know, as we were uh, worshiping, and, and I think Brad, Brad said it, he talked about worship is, is singing the praises to Jesus. Worship is what we're, we're doing as we, we study and we open the Word of God. And so I just want to continue that spirit of worship, right? That what we're doing here, we're gathering together. I had somebody come up to me during the worship service and, and mention to me 1 Peter 2, uh, 9 and 10, it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, a people, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not mercy, uh, received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as we go into our time together in the Word this morning, which is going to be in Daniel chapter 4, what I want to do is just remind us of who we have been made to be through Christ. That we are a people that once did not receive mercy, but now through faith in Christ have received mercy. We've received the grace of God. We've received the righteousness of Christ, and we've been made into this royal priesthood. Praise God. And so then, as we go into the study of, of today's word, as the book of Romans says, would we be renewed in our minds? Would we be made and shaped into new people by the power of the Holy Spirit in us? I'm just excited this morning. Okay, So I, I think that is just incredible realities that we get to look forward to. So all of that being said, today we're in the second uh, to last week of a series we've been in now for three different weeks uh, called Exiles. And in this series, we're walking uh, through the several of well, five of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And the reason for that title, Exiles, if you're not too familiar with Daniel, is because uh, Babylon and its king, King Nebuchadnezzar, came, they laid siege to Jerusalem they took the best and the brightest and the most precious out of Jerusalem into exile in a land called Babylon. And so that's really what we're looking, about and looking at. And what we're saying in this series is that, that faith is not about where you live. Faith is about how you live. I think that's important for us to consider, right? Faith, you know, sometimes I ask folks, well, how long have you been a Christian? And they said, well, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Having faith in Jesus and repenting of your sin and trusting Christ for your salvation makes you a Christian. Right? And, and so we got to be real careful with that about saying, well, I live, I live with Christian people. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I, like, let's be Christian homes. But faith is an individual experience that we all need to have. Faith is not about where you live. Faith is about how you live and how you live out your faith wherever God has placed you, whether that be in your workplace or your school, or again, wherever. And so today, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. If you have the scriptures with you, you can open there. Um, I, I do, I think it's just always good. I know we, we've prayed multiple times already this morning. That's great. 
It shouldn't be weird for us as church people to, to pray numerous times in the morning. So before we get into the word, um, as the book of Romans says, we do need our minds renewed today. And so uh, let's go to the Lord and ask that he would do that supernaturally by the power of his spirit, okay? Father, uh, we ask that, that you would renew our minds, that you would help us realize the realities of Second Peter, that we are a royal priesthood, that we have received your mercy, we've received your grace, and would we praise you because of that. As we open Daniel, would you open it to us? Would you pierce our hearts? Would you conform us into your image as painful as that can be sometimes, it is so good and so beautiful. So get me out of the way, Father. Help me teach your word clearly. Uh, we need you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the text says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his signs, how mighty his wonders, excuse me, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if it's your first week in this series, you might read that and say, okay, cool. But if you've been all along in this, you're like, wait a minute, who's writing this? Who's proclaiming the wonders of the Most High God? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Here's why that's crazy. If you go back to chapter 1 uh, in Daniel, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar wants to destroy God's people. Nebuchadnezzar wants to destroy Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar wants to destroy the temple of God. What we see in the book of Daniel is sort of phase one of this three-pronged attack against Jerusalem. And so now we fast forward to chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, just a little introduction here. I want to tell the whole world about what God has done in my life. Like, hello, that's a big deal. Only God can take somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most evil men in the history of the world, and make him the author of a chapter in the Bible, crazy, carried on by the Holy Spirit, to glorify God. Like, that's just cool and it blows my mind. Okay. Now, so that's his introduction. Okay. That's his introduction. He's saying, Hey, I'm about to write to you what God has done in my life. And now in the rest of this chapter, what we're going to see is sort of him retelling this story in his own words. Again, the King of Babylon is an author of the chapter of a chapter in the Bible. That's like a clickbait article that you can't help but be, you know, just sucked in by. Okay. Verse four, it says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospered in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now we've seen this pattern before, haven't we? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar through these dreams. And his first go-to response is to look for wisdom and look for counsel from the wise men of Babylon, which is understandable. So he calls them and he says, hey, I need you to tell me the dream. Well, what we see is that, that they can't really tell him the dream, or it's probably that they're scared to, to interpret the dream to him. We haven't gotten to the content yet. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he calls Daniel, Daniel, one of the faithful ex exiles uh, of God. And Daniel has interpreted his dreams before. Nebuchadnezzar seems to trust Daniel. They have a unique relationship with Daniel. 
And so what happens now, we pick up in verse 10, verses 10 through 18. We're going to read quite a bit here. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. Now, I think it's important just quickly to note, this is very different from how Nebuchadnezzar approached this back in chapter 2, if you recall. Back in chapter 2, what Nebuchadnezzar did was, I want you to prove it to me. I want you to tell me the content of my dream. Now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look, I trust you. We're in this thing together. I, I see the spirit of holy God in you. Um, I think he uses God's plural, which is wrong. But yeah, I see the spirit of God in you. And so he tells Daniel the dream. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me, that's Daniel, by the way, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So that's a crazy dream. Anybody else is like, what is happening here? Okay, so uh, Daniel, um, again, he, he approaches the king, and he does so with, with some tact. He's super wise, Daniel. He, he's like, man, king, I wish that this were against your enemies. And this actually probably explains why the wise men of Babylon were like, sorry, I can't help you. I'm terrified. Uh, frankly. And so Daniel, Daniel says this in verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. And in this moment, you got to think that Nebuchadnezzar's like, yes, that's right. I am this awesome tree. Uh, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven seasons of time pass him. This is the interpretation, O king. And now Nebuchadnezzar's got to be a little bit nervous, because that sounds like that's not good. Um, that verse, uh, verse 25, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, 
And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So he says, hey, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, this, this, this dream is for you. You're going to be chopped down like this tree. You're going to be cast into the wild, into the wilderness, in a sense. And you're going to live like a, a wild animal. Now, what's fascinating is, is the Babylonians, they were incredibly detailed um, recorders of events. And what you see is that in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, there's about a seven-year gap where there's no entries. Just think that's cool, right? Seven-year gap where no entries. And so what we see here is Daniel saying, look, this is going to happen to you. Now, as we sort of zoom out, I think a couple of things are really, really fascinating. I think, I think this, look, loving others, friend or foe, includes a willingness to warn of judgment and plead for repentance. Again, think about that. Daniel, knowing this interpretation, knowing what it meant, and considering who Nebuchadnezzar is, remember, this is the guy who laid siege to his homeland, destroyed the temple, carried him off, gave him a new name that, that essentially associated him with a false god. Then this Nebuchadnezzar threw his three best friends into a furnace to try and kill them. And you would think, I think honestly, if it were me, it would sort of be understandable. If I knew the interpretation was judgment, I would say, good. If anybody deserves judgment, it's Nebuchadnezzar. But isn't it fascinating that Daniel has such a love in him that's only a gift from God, that he is willing to share with Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most evil men in history, that wrath is coming, judgment is coming, and he's willing to say, you need to repent in order to save yourself from the wrath that is coming. You see, Daniel cared more about salvation than he did retribution. He cared more about salvation than he did retribution. And I think that's a difficult thing for us to grapple with. That's a difficult thing for us to wrestle with. And so I think, I think we've got to ask ourselves, are we willing to do that? You know, are, are we willing to speak about the difficult realities that the Bible teaches, specifically about the wrath of God, that is coming upon all mankind who is not found in Christ? The Gospel of John is very clear that Jesus didn't come into the world to, to condemn the world, but the world is already condemned. Our natural condition is separation from God. What Jesus came into the world to do was to save us from the wrath of God through faith in him. And so the question is, are we willing to love people enough to share with them the coming reality that when the end of the age comes so too comes the wrath of God against all those who are not found in him. And frankly, I think it's easier to share about future judgment to people we don't know than it is to share with those we do. It's easier to post something on Facebook, I think. Frankly, I think it's easier to hold up a sign that says hell is, hell is real and scream at people with a bullhorn. Don't do that, by the way. Probably not effective. But, but it's, it's disassociated. It's detached. 
it is much more difficult, I think, to sit down with somebody you love and to say, hey, these are the coming realities. This is what's happening. This is true. And, and by the grace of God, you have an opportunity to repent, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your rejection of God and be reconciled to him. So are we willing to share the gospel? Second question that comes up, are we willing to share the gospel even with those who have wronged us? And I really think we see this in the text. Again, that list of horrors that Nebuchadnezzar has unleashed on Daniel and his three friends and the people of God. And yet, Daniel cares more, about, again, about salvation. He cares more about the glory of God than he does anything else. I think if you look at the example of Jesus, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, after he's been beaten, after a crown of thorns has been shoved down into his head, he's been stripped, he's been mocked, he's been spat upon, what does he say as he's hanging on the cross? Forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Are we willing to share the gospel with those who have wronged us for the glory of God? And I know that that could really touch a nerve because I know some of us have been wronged in such ways that no one should ever be wronged. People in this room have been hurt and taken advantage of and mistreated. And I don't want to take those things lightly. But what I do want to challenge us with is the pattern of the scriptures that we see. I am not the authority, but the pattern of the scriptures that show us God's heart toward those who have wronged him is the authority. There's a professor, somewhat well-known, named Professor Robert Smith Jr. Robert Smith Jr., um, again, I just sort of know of him in the Christian world. He's a professor, he's a theologian, he's a pastor. Um, well, a long, some, some time ago, uh, his son, who was 34 years old, was killed. He was murdered uh, by an 18-year-old young man. Robert Smith Jr. went to the hearing, uh, to the court, um, and watched this, the proceedings play out. A, a guilty verdict was given to the young man that killed Robert Smith's son. Robert Smith took that in, walked away. Again, horrific thing. Sometime later, he felt like the Holy Spirit was prompting him, you need to go speak to that young man who killed your son. And so he did. He went to prison, sat down. Again, there's a very long sentence this young man was given at 18 years old. Sat down, had a conversation with him, walked away. It's like, okay, God, I was obedient. Sometime later, the old Holy Spirit, he has a way of doing this. He started poking at him again and said, you need to share the gospel with that young man. He's like, no. He killed my son. Share the gospel. Okay. Goes into the prison. He shares the gospel with this young man. He believes the gospel. He repents. He comes to faith in Christ. And he's like, okay, God, I did it. Walks away. Wouldn't you know it? Sometime later, the old Holy Spirit comes back and is like, who's going to disciple that guy? No. Who's going to disciple him? He then establishes a discipleship relationship with the young man who killed his son and trained him for the work of ministry. That doesn't make sense in our world of justice and wanting wrongs to be righted. And it's not that we should disregard justice, but we should be a people who have the heart of Christ to desire salvation more than we desire retribution. Because God will deliver justice in only the way God can. Our job is not justice. Our job is to be instruments in the process of salvation as God saves people, not us. Again, we're instruments. I want to be very, very clear in that. We are instruments in the process. God is the only one who can 
work and change somebody's heart. But again, I'm going to ask you, are you willing to share the gospel? Number one, are you willing to share the gospel with those who have wronged you? Again, following the pattern of Scripture. Now, the text goes on. We're going to pick things back up in verse 28. Remember what happened just in verse 27 was Daniel said, Repent, Nebuchadnezzar, and maybe you'll be spared. Verse 28, All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so 12 months after he was given the interpretation of his dream, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He looks down like, look what I have done. This is stunning. Man, I'm awesome. 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and you shall... And your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his tail were like birds' claws." So all that is promised in judgment against Nebuchadnezzar comes true because he refused to, to repent. In his pride, he says, look what kingdom, look what power, look what might I have built. And if you remember, the entire purpose of this chapter is what verse 17 said it was. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. That's the entire point of this passage, that the men would understand the kingdom the kingdoms of this world are ultimately ruled by God. So now what happens? Verse 34, at the end of the days, the seven times, years, Nebuchadnezzar lifted, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Stunning. For this dominion is an everlasting, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me after this moment of acknowledging that God is God and I am not. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What a story. This week I was wrestling through this text and I asked this crazy question. Is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who God used to take his people into, into exile, saved? Like, is he saved? That's a, it like stretches our, our limit, doesn't it, for what the gospel is. And frankly, the text doesn't directly answer us. Some theologians and scholars would say he is absolutely not saved. Some theologians and scholars say he, he might be. I don't really know where I land, but I think it's stunning. And I think the point we see here is that God rules over the kingdoms of man. That's the point. And I think that the text doesn't actually tell us whether or not he's saved. It takes the emphasis off of Nebuchadnezzar and it places it on God. Remember, the entire purpose of this chapter is God's glory. God rules over the kingdoms of men. And I think in this text, church, we have a tremendous opportunity 
we hear from one of the most powerful men in history that I'm not it. (laughs) My kingdom is not mine. It is God's kingdom. And I think we like that idea, don't we? We like the idea that God reigns over all things, that God rules over all things, that God is in control. When wars happen, when tragedies strike, that gives us peace to know that out there in the world, God is sovereign, God is ultimately in control. We love that God is the king out there, but my question for us this morning is, do we allow God to be king in here? We love God to be in control out there. But do we, like Nebuchadnezzar, allow God to be in control right here? That really struck me this week, frankly. So I want to ask us some questions to to diagnose, in a sense, do I allow God to be the king of my heart, or do I somehow hold on to my own little kingdom, my own little power struggle? And so I want to ask us a series of questions that I asked myself this week. First question is this. Is there something Jesus has commanded me to do? And again, I'm asking myself these things. Is there something that Jesus has commanded me to do that I am refusing to do? Let me tell you how this played out for me this week. You know, one of the the most difficult things about doing this every week is I have the most opportunity to be a tremendous hypocrite. I stand up here and get all fired up about the Word of God and say all these things and try and pull these points from the Scriptures, and and it's true, but am I doing it? God has commanded us to share the gospel, right? Like Jesus said, go. I am in control. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I'm your pastor, of all people, I should be willing to share the gospel, right? After I tell this story, if you want to start a petition to fire me, I think it's justified. Two of my best friends from college, two of my best friends, and I've shared this with a couple of you in this room, they, they don't follow Jesus. We have this really weird thing. We, we literally text each other every single night a recap of our day. Crazy weird, but we do. Neither of them are believers. I'm sitting here, and I've, I've been convicted over this before, but I'm going through these points, and I'm, I write this point out, and I'm like, Duh, why? I wasn't willing to share the gospel with them because I didn't want it to be awkward. But what does that show? It shows that I'm the king of my heart in that moment and not God. It shows that I'm, I'm saying, no, I, I just want to protect this relationship because if I make it weird, maybe then I won't be able to share the gospel down the road. But I was like, no, I, I just have to do this. So I pray, I submit things to the Lord. I'm like, God, help me. I write individual texts to each of them. I say, look, guys, I need you to forgive me. I believe this stuff. I believe that the reality of hell is real. I believe that that Jesus saves us. I believe that sin separates us from God. Would you forgive me for not sharing that with you? And would you be willing to have a conversation about what you believe in God? And they said, yeah, I would be willing. Praise God. And we haven't been able to have that conversation yet, but these are the kind of things. I think all of us have something in us that's like, I know God told me to do that. I'm not going to do it yet. I'm just going to hang on for a little bit because I don't want to make things weird with my family. I don't want to make things uncomfortable for myself. What is it for you that you know God has spoken that into your life, whether it's from the word of God, whether it's from godly community, that you're just flat out being disobedient to today? 
we have an opportunity to repent, praise God. Second question I asked myself this week, and they just keep getting more and more fun. I know you probably can't read that. It says this, when I consider my financial situation, do I consider myself an owner or a steward? Once again, it's really, really easy for us to, to look at our, our finances and say, man, I'm doing pretty good, or man, I'm, doing, I'm a train wreck. This is bad, right? Either way, wherever we are, we need to understand that every cent we've been given ultimately belongs to God. None of it belongs to us. We've simply been made stewards over it. So who owns your money? You or God? Again, just poking at myself too. Number three, all right? When I consider my accomplishments, do I give myself credit or do I believe credit goes to God? It's very, very similar. I think it's really easy for us to be like Nebuchadnezzar, to, to stand in our, our beautifully cultivated you know, yards and houses and, and say, look what I've done. Man, I'm awesome. We don't say that out loud. Maybe we do. I've crushed it. But really, everything that you have, did you? Is, is it really you? Who gave you the ability to make money, to have these possessions, to manicure your lawn, to rehab your house, whatever it is? Who gave you that? Who gave you the children that you have to raise? Who gave you the friendships you have? Who gave you the job that you have that you go to work every day? Who did it? Was it you? Was it me? It was God. And if it's God, then I can't go around in pride and say, look what I've done. What I need to do is go into God and worship and say, look what you have done, God, in my life. Be glorified and worshiped through the things you've given me. Let me use what you've given me, my home, my resources, all of these things for your glory and your purposes. Number four is basically the same thing. You know where I'm going. Uh, there's, there's a fourth and there's only three. All right, well, maybe there's, maybe there's not. Um, okay, you get the point, right? You get the point. Oh, thank you so much. When I look at the blessing in my life, do I believe I deserve them or do I believe that they are an unmerited gift from God? Again, it's the same idea. Probably could have left four off because it's the same thing. Every gift in your life, is it you or is it God? And so, following Daniel's lead this morning, remember what he says in verse 27. He says, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. I think we have that opportunity this morning, church. And so we're going to do something a little bit different. Something we haven't done before, but I think it's going to be good for us. We're going to go to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. And what we're going to do is I'm going to read a verse for us that proclaims who Jesus is. And if you are in this room this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, this is for you, okay? If you're in this room and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, number one, I am pumped you're here. And this might be a little uncomfortable because what we're going to do as a church is we're going to proclaim and pray back things to Jesus in response to this text. And so if you're in the room and you're not a believer, I pray what you see is a bunch of Christians saying, I'm not it, Jesus is, I need Jesus' help. And that's really, really good. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put verse 9 up on the, text, on the screens for us. I want us to just, just look at that for a second, right? Verse 9 says this, Therefore God exalted him, being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. I want you to think about that for a little bit. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put another line on this that says response. And we're not going to read it right away, but I want, I'm going to put this line up. Go ahead, put it up. The response that we need to this verse is, Jesus, you are worthy of being king in my life. 
I want you to soak that in for a minute. If you agree with that, I want you to proclaim it to God this morning. We're going to do that together. So take a second. Is Jesus the king of your life? Let's read this together. Jesus, you are worthy of being king in my life. Verse 10 says this. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under and under the earth. Now here's our response. I want you to soak it in. Jesus, we bow to you. We submit ourselves to your authority and who you are. Soak that in for a second. Do you, we're saying things to God this morning. Take that seriously. If you're ready to respond, Jesus, we bow to you. We submit ourselves to your authority and your rule. Please, God. Verse 11. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our response this morning, Jesus, we confess that you are Lord. Glorify the Father in and through us. Let's do it together. Jesus, we confess that you are Lord. Glorify the Father in and through us. Amen. I want this to be a turning point in your life. We can look back on this moment and say, no, that's the moment I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not it. Jesus, you are. You are Lord. You are King. I don't know what's best for my life. Jesus, you do. To the praise of his glory. So that God would be glorified in and through our submission that we need him. Let's pray together this morning, church. Father, we praise you for your word, that you hear us, that you cut us. (laughs) We confess to you this morning as a church, as this body of Christ here in this city, that you have uniquely knit together, that you are Lord and that we need you. Would you, by the power of your spirit, work in us in such a way that we live that out radically? To the, to the one, to the two, to the three in the room this morning who don't yet know Jesus as Lord, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Consider the gift of not being in control. In this world, that sounds scary. But who else other than the God who created all things, the God who defeated death, who else would you want in control of your life? And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus to say, you are my Lord Jesus, I need you Jesus, I have sinned, take the penalty and the punishment for my sin. If you have not done that, I plead with you. Do that this morning. God, send your spirit to work in us in only the ways that you can. We love you, we need you, we trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.